Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard. I am Director of ECFR. And this week, once again, we're going to talk about the war in Ukraine. But this time, we're going to look at how it's seen in China and the implications for the Russia-China relationship. Many are asking if Russia and China are joining forces in an alliance of autocracies and whether the Chinese alternative might shield Russia from the pressure which the West is trying to put on it through sanctions, through control of the global financial system and through diversifying its energy resources. What are Russian and Chinese policymakers planning How are the discussions between these two great powers evolving and what should Europeans do about it? Well, I'm very happy to welcome back to the podcast two great experts who've been thinking about this from the two different angles, from the Chinese side and from the Russian side. And they've even been working together on publications on this uh, for a while now. And these are all issues which are very much coming to the fore at the moment. So first up, we have uh, Kadri Leek, who's a senior policy fellow at ECFR, focusing on Russia and Eastern Europe. And secondly, we have uh, Janka Erkel, who is the director of our Asia program at ECFR. Thank you both for coming back to the podcast. Um, so why don't we start with this question about the, the reactions from, from China regarding the, the war um, uh, in Ukraine. We've seen a sort of... Uh, evolution uh, of diplomatic statements. I was at the Munich Security Conference where we heard from Wang Yi how China supports territorial integrity and, and, and sovereignty. Um, and I think some people uh, in, the, in the West had maybe hoped that China's recognition of, sorry, that Russia's recognition of breakaway republics might make the Chinese a bit queasy. It's not one of their um, favorite things uh, on the agenda. Um, but at the same time, and we know from, from 2014 onwards how um, China has been quite happy to take advantage of the openings which were created from the deterioration of Russia's relationship with the West, both by uh, cashing in on the distractions which um, uh, Russian actions uh, <laughs> make from, from Chinese behaviour, but also you know, by taking advantage of, of uh, the opportunity to get more weapons, to get um, uh, different kinds of technologies, to to get access to Russian hydrocarbons. Uh, Janka, how do you um, view the the reaction from Beijing so far? Thank you. Yes, I think one of the most interesting aspects is that we had a prelude to war this time, um, and one that is quite striking in a way. We had not only the Americans out there briefing each and every one that they could find about potential Russian. Uh, intentions and and kind of throwing all the intelligence out there, which they also did with the Chinese. But we also had Vladimir Putin um, taking the initiative, traveling to China to the opening of the Olympics and signing a very remarkable statement on the 4th of February together with Chinese President Xi Jinping. And why is that important? Because it underscored and enhanced the relationship between the two. And it kind of puts a personal face of Xi Jinping on this as well. So he himself was out there supporting Russia, supporting Putin, um, well knowing what could happen and knowing how escalating the situation was with regard to Ukraine already and kind of signaling support to Russia. And this fits into a broader picture of 
um, what the China-Russia relationship could look like from the Chinese perspective, where Russia is just an important enabling function to changing um, the global order and to pushing back against the West. The formulations that China has been using since, um, opposing um, NATO expansionism and the reference to, quote unquote, Russian legitimate security interests, um, I think is something that is, is quite striking in their severity. Um, and we see a very limited version of walking this back. Since this has gotten not, it has not gone as well and as quickly as maybe expected in Beijing, there's some more careful rhetoric coming from Beijing now. But it all stops at the line of basically saying um, we still support um, the kind of uh, pushing back that, uh, that the Russians are doing. Um, so the Chinese at the moment are in that problem that narrative-wise, this is not going so well. Um, so they need to stick this um, to the United States um, and to Cold War mentality prevailing in the West. Um, but it's becoming harder to kind of maintain that position. So you see behind the scenes and in kind of in the private, a bit more caution in terms of where this, uh, where this kind of will go um, and how the position will evolve and whether Putin is actually going to be successful with his campaign or not. Because if he's not, then that obviously changes the logic for the Chinese side. So Kadri, how do you think the Russians are thinking about their long-term relationship with, with China? It's obviously changed a lot since 2014, back in 2014. Russia was obviously much more focused on the West than it was on what was happening uh, to its East. And there was a lot of nervousness about, um, uh, you know, what could happen in some of the underpopulated bits of the of, of the Russian steppes um, on the, and, and what the Chinese might do with that. But since then, um, China has really stepped in and has given um, the Russians a lot of alternatives. And I mean, it's hard not to think that the the fact that there is now uh, a, a Chinese alternative, which wasn't there before 2014, um, with pipelines taking uh, gas to um, to China, and also a huge amount of, of faith in the size of the Chinese market and, and foreign reserves, but that that hasn't made Putin a bit more confident. Is that is that right? Do you think that? This is one of the things which has made him less scared of, of Western sanctions and of being isolated by the West. I think so. Um, I think actually Russia has been cultivating relationships in uh, different parts of the world um, exactly in order to not to be too dependent on, on the West. So it's not just China, but they have also become a power broker in the Middle East. They have cultivated relationships in, in Africa, uh, to some extent even in Latin America. So they are sort of clearly trying to find partners other than the West. And of course, China is most prominent among them. And you are right. As concerns China, I think Russia made a basically a U-turn in um, around 2015. Uh, then they decided that now that the Western relationship is broken, they need to be uh, they, they need to look at China in a, in a different way. Uh, they agreed that the two regional projects, Belt and Road and uh, Russia's Eurasian Union, would not be competitors, but but they would cooperate. Uh, they tried to get Chinese investments. That was not such a success story as they maybe hoped. Investments came, but fewer than they expected and on, on tougher terms. 
But nonetheless, I think the U-turn was 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 relatively decisive, and they decided to stop worrying about Chinese takeover of, of the Far East. It was decided that that is not happening um, in on a dramatic scale. Uh, they also decided not to care about the possibility that China might copy some of Russian military aircraft that it buys. Earlier, Russia had been highly selective about what kind of weaponry they would sell to China. Uh, since 2015, they have been selling all sorts. They know that China will copy it, but they decided that uh, other concerns outweigh uh, this unpleasant fact. So, yes, Russia has made sure that, that China in this conflict is more on Russia's side than on the Western side. And any misgivings that Russia might have had about the growing might of China, and I, I spotted some of them when talking to people just last year. I mean, Russia doesn't want to let China into the sensitive brain centers of its um, security affairs, such as face recognition center. Um, and I thought that, you know, over time, these concerns might grow stronger and allow uh, some space um, for the West to sort of come in between the two, uh, give Russia space to hedge against China. I think that has now become obsolete uh, over the last week. Um, any Kissinger in reverse, but some of us might have been hoping uh, to materialize at some point. I think that's now indefinitely postponed. So the Kissinger in reverse would be the West befriending Russia in order to defeat China, the, the bigger. Yes, exactly. Exactly. That the big project happen. talked about in Washington and in, in Paris. And yeah, yeah. not yeah. on the cards in the next few weeks. No, Kissinger would have to make some assaults to make this happen. I don't think that is anywhere, anywhere near likely at the moment. Um, before we go back to, to, to Yanka, though, um, Yanka talked about this this. Um, agreement which Xi and Putin um, made on the sidelines of the Olympic Games. What's the, the Russian take on that? What do they think it means? I haven't seen it discussed at length in Russia, but I think um, that was sort of taken as another phase of development uh, that is um, that was launched already earlier. So we're not, not a sea change in, in Russia. Um, I mean, sinologists in Russia have sort of been dissecting the language, discussing which paragraphs are inserted by Russia, which ones are the ones that, that reflect the sort of favorite ideas of, of China. Um, and it's it's a step further on um, on, on on many issues, but yeah, it's not it's not a game changer. The process was vowed already earlier. So, Yanka, you wrote a commentary on 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 this and said that we shouldn't underestimate its importance. It, it, Xi Jinping talks about a comprehensive strategic partnership for a new era. What do you think the main areas are for for closer cooperation? I think first of all, we can underscore the fact that they're respectively each other's most important partners at the moment, and that this is not expressed in GDP terms. And I think that's something that we tend to get wrong, where we say, but they're actually not so important for the Chinese. The Chinese are much more important for the Russians. That is a kind of mutually um, important relationship. It lends weight and credibility and diplomatic power to both sides. 
Um, and that is something that cannot be underestimated and maybe cannot even be weighed in terms of kind of financial or economic benefits. It's much more important than that. And I think that is the difference of this statement as well, that it was taking on some of the language that was just not there before in any of that discourse. No one forced Xi Jinping on the 4th of February to say that he opposes NATO expansionism. That's not something that is part of the standard repertoire of the language between the two beforehand. And it was explicitly put into this, um, into this kind of communication between the two. And so, so I think a, that is quite relevant. So a cynic would think, because that from a Chinese perspective, Russia, you know, is the kind of useful idiot to use the old uh, resident Communist Party phrase. And, uh, you know, it, it's going around breaking the crockery in the West, destroying a lot of the, the kind of... Uh, institutions of Western, uh, dominated by the West, the norms which the West put in, um, and also uh, eating up a lot of attention, which can now not be um, uh, deployed to contain Chinese uh, expansionism, whether it's in Asia or in other parts of the world. Um, is that the, the, the kind of main attraction of, of this relationship, that they can somehow hide behind Russia, they can make sure that the latest attempt to pivot to the Indo-Pacific and Asia gets defeated with Russia playing the kind of role of, of a kind of giant Iraq and Afghanistan. I mean, it's certainly useful for Chinese interests that US attention is now divided between Europe and the Indo-Pacific more decisively. Um, and that this whole refocus, and you have a huge debate within the US policy community now, it's more important, who do we need to defend, where do we need to spend our money, that is certainly something that is not against Chinese interests. But I would be very careful with all these kind of Russia being China's vassal or a useful idiot or these things. I think there is an understanding that um, Russia is also a, it's a nuclear power, it's an important player, um, and it's really hard to um, kind of keep in check. And I think that is a lesson that the Chinese are learning at the moment as well, is that the Russians will have their own views and their own preferences and their own priorities. Um, and that may, in the long run, very much run counter to Chinese interests. So I think there is a there is a careful um, alignment here of interest. It's temporary. Um, it's currently stable. But I think it can be knocked over as well. Um, it depends very much on how this goes um, and what the outcome of this warfare now will be. So that that was the conventional wisdom. Bobo Lowe wrote this book a long time ago. Um, you know, I think um, after the Georgian War called uh, Axis of Convenience around the time when the Shanghai Corporation Organization was, was being formed. And there was uh, quite a lot of complacency, I think, in Western capitals that there, there were as many things dividing Russia from China as bringing them together. But it does look like this relationship is becoming more and more convenient at the very least. Exactly. I think that's a, it's a question of how you define convenience um, and how much this is against kind of Western interests. Um, but one thing I would like to stress also, because um, because I'm, I'm with the Asia program, not just watching China, I think the reactions of the world are kind of interesting to the Chinese as well, watching the reactions in their region. Um, so watching the Indians be very careful but seeing Japan, Korea, Singapore swinging in with sanctions. So this for China, this is not only looking at the West and how the West reacts, it's basically how the rest of the world reacts, what are the reactions in African countries, et cetera. So that all plays and figures into the kind of so, um, assessment. So that is like a really fundamental thing, though, the Indian reaction, because I think in the minds of, you know, many uh, Americans and Europeans, what this crisis is doing is, on the one hand, 
may be cementing the kind of axis of autocracy between Russia and China. Um, but at the same time, you know, certainly at the Munich Security Conference and other places, people see the West coming back together and being more united than it was before. But India isn't playing the role that was allocated to it. It was meant to be on the democratic side. And yet, um, you know, at the UN Security Council in other areas, the Indians are not joining the condemnations of, 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 of the Russians. Um, how do you see uh, and I've even heard that India is, is talking to the Russians about creating alternative payment systems um, now that SWIFT is being um, uh, uh, disconnected from Russian banks. Well, I'm not going to take the role of my dear colleague, Frederick Grar, who would be the competent person to talk about this. But just very broadly, I think it shows us that India also has its own interests and that it is very much in a bind right here, right now, with very close relations to Russia, um, with wanting to kind of stay neutral in this, but everyone being really kind of pushing it in one direction and the other, and it really being in kind of a, uh, a stranglehold of its diplomatic positions, its economic interests, its military interests. Um, you know, if you want to get um, spare parts for your fighter jets, then he, they need a closer relationship to the Russians. So this is a really complex and complicated situation for India as well. And that navigating all that in a scenario where there's also complicated relations with China. So I think what the Ukraine crisis tells us in this context from an Asian perspective is that this war in Europe is actually a global order problem. It's a global um, discussion that we're having and that evolves around it and it will change the global order. So do you think that the US is going to be able to tell India that they're going to need to choose sides eventually? Or do you think that the the, the, relay, the dependence on, on Russian military equipment is so great that they will uh, insist on this neutral stance which they've taken so far? I assume the latter, but I'm not competent enough to judge that. So Kadri, one of the things that um, is happening is that the conflict between Russia and the West is not only taking place in the military sphere, but is um, taking place in a big way in the economic and, and, and financial and energy spheres. Um, to what I remember, I think we were together on trips to Moscow back in 2014 after the annexation of Crimea. And a lot of Russians that we met then were getting credit cards with union pay uh, on them because they were worried that um, Russian banks might be kicked out of SWIFT and that the uh, Western financial system might be close to them. Um, and now we have this extraordinary situation where having built up hundreds of millions of hundreds of billions of dollars of reserves, um, the Russian central bank is being uh, sanctioned. Um, it has tried to diversify its reserves away from uh, from dollars, but there are very few people who are going to give it kind of liquidity if he want, wants to use them. But one of the big exceptions is China, about I think 15% of their reserves are in renminbi. Um, how important do you think China is going to be as a, as a sort of economic lifeline to, to Russia um, over the next period of time. And we talked about some of the diplomatic support that's going on. Um, but will China effectively bankroll uh, the Russian war? I do not know. Um, not being an economist, it's, it's hard to charge. Uh, but I think... Um, Several things are certain, but Russia will be much more dependent on China, both politically and economically. 
And I think also the two will be working in tandem to sort of further develop ways of um, circumventing Western sanctions and, and, and making sure that the West couldn't hit them in ways that are existential. Uh, and I think we need to be ready for, for that. Uh, you know, that I don't exclude that now is the last time the West can do sanctions that actually matter because, you know, Russia didn't probably expect us to sanction the central bank because also, you know, 2014 SWIFT would have been really catastrophe for Russia. Back then, I don't think they had many uh, domestic payment systems. So, they couldn't have paid pensions, and that's why we were really nervous. Basically, uh, one thing is certain that Russia and China will do everything they can to prevent us from doing meaningful sanctions again. Uh, but if, if 2014, Russia was really anxious about being kicked out from SWIFT, now they care already a lot less about SWIFT, and they will try to sanctions-proof themselves even further, both Russia and China. Because that's one of the fears, presumably, in Beijing, Yanka, that if um, there is a war over Taiwan um, or uh, some other escalation between the US and China, that the US will try and use its financial leverage over China in the way that it's been using its technological leverage under Trump with with um, uh, contr- you know the the attacks on on uh, ZTE and um, and Huawei um, to, and um, you know it does seem outlandish that you could do secondary sanctions against an economy as big as as China's. These are techniques which were initially developed as part of the war on terror to be used against Osama bin Laden. And they kind of gradually, the targets have gradually grown to North Korea, to Iran, to quite big countries. But Russia is taking it to a whole extra level. How worried are are people about that? And presumably that's maybe one of the reasons why they want to make sure that these sanctions fail and are seen to fail so that we don't have the audacity of, of trying them out on on China itself, which would be an incredible thing, given how big the Chinese economy is. I mean, in, in the end, we are sanctioning post-fact, though, now. I mean, the, the damage is already done. We're now trying to limit whatever we can and in the future, but the damage has already happened. So the sanctions, in a way, cannot kind of prevent anything anymore, uh, really. Um, they're just kind of a, um, yeah, they, they are just after the fact. But in Beijing, obviously, um, this is an an interesting indication of what the portfolio could look like. And I think there is two takeaways from that. One is there is a lot of things that the West is willing to do if it is really poked um, and they get a lot of support for it. And this can be really painful for an economy. But the other lesson that they can draw is it will take a lot to get the West to that. Um, I mean, all of the warnings that were there, all of that didn't get, didn't generate these kind of sanctions beforehand. It actually took a bloody invasion and a fighting back of the Ukrainians to actually trigger these sanctions and to get particularly the Germans to move. And the other takeaway I think that one can tentatively draw from this at, at this stage in Beijing is it is very unlikely that the similar conditions would apply, for example, to a Taiwan scenario where the public support will be a different one, the closeness to our um, kind of um, yeah, political sphere, our diplomatic sphere is much, uh, it's much less, much more limited. 
And there will be um, a lot greater damage to our own economies. In the end, the Russian economy is relatively small. So I think there are, this is a kind of nice piece of looking at what is how this is going to play out, how one can, I think, as Kadri just rightly says, sanction proof oneself even more. There's a huge trend in China, kind of the decoupling uh, initiatives to make oneself less dependent on potential kind of uh, external um, force and external economic sanctions. Um, so I think it will just kind of um, speed up that trend, particularly in the financial sector. And it's thus an interesting test case. Um, but I think the, the Chinese side is probably right in assuming that it would be much harder to generate a similar response in a potential Taiwan contingency from the West. So we've been talking a lot about what's going on. We talked a lot less about what we should be doing about it. Um, maybe you could both give us your sense. I mean, what what are the implications of the analysis that we've just heard for the West? Should we be trying to, to decouple uh, China and uh and Russia, presumably, it, it's very hard to do that in the short term. But but there are still, I think, hopes that the Chinese not might be relatively uncomfortable about the territorial, uh, the changing of, of borders and uh, uh, and the recognition of, of of these rebel statelets. Um, uh, but also in the longer term, you know, we talked about reverse Kissinger being off the off the cards for now, but. That might become attractive again if Trump's back in the White House and uh, as things die down. It didn't take that long after 2014 for people to be talking about resets. That was the big Obama administration uh, approach. Maybe people will be a bit more skeptical about resets this time around. But but memories are short. And if Trump goes back in the White House, um, who knows what, what could happen? And also from a European perspective, how, how should we be playing this? Should we be worried about driving Russia and China um, irrevocably into each other's arms, or is that something that we can't do anything about anyway? Well, um, my thinking is that we, um, Europe especially, uh, we should change our um, mindset um, and and try to be try to do more what I would call classical foreign policy because Europe has had that normative approach. We try to spend uh, to spread norms, values, democracy everywhere, um, and by sort of targeting everyone, uh, we have actually um, consolidated our adversaries. Everyone who doesn't want democracy, they have motivation to consolidate against Europe. So, uh, in sort of realist, uh, in. in in the framework of sort of realist theory of foreign policy, I think we have done really badly. We have managed, instead of splitting our enemies, we have managed to consolidate them. And we we may have been playing our cards quite badly. So I think we should understand the fact that I think Ivan Kreistiv has mentioned in one of his articles that the West might be thinking that we are isolating Russia, but Russia is thinking that it is isolating the West. Russia is probably hoping that the rest is united with Russia. And even if that is not fully true at the moment, it could become true if we are not careful. So I think it is important really to uh, forge workable alliances with non-Western countries out there. Um, yeah, I, I'm not sure how much we can do at the moment about uh, Russia-China partnership. Uh, maybe maybe not very much, but that's not the whole world. Uh, there are many other 
countries and and powers out there. And I think it is important to make sure that in any of these conflicts um, that we can vaguely see the horizon, um, they would be more likely to side with us than with our adversaries. What's your advice, Yanka? I think it was a bit of an irony that on the day of the invasion, French government was hosting a huge ministerial meeting on the Indo-Pacific, bringing together you know, 27 European member states and 30 countries, more than 30 countries from the region, trying to kind of project just that, you know, kind of the countries in the middle, the role of middle powers. Um, and, and it was kind of overtaken by events that were happening at that very moment then in Ukraine. I think it's not going to be that easy. But I also agree with Kadri that driving China and Russia apart at the moment actively and not kind of you know, something that would happen between the two of them is very, very difficult and very, very unlikely that we have a lot of leverage in that regard. Um, I think we have to start thinking all of these contingencies through much more thoroughly um, and just go to further extremes in, in them, um, because I think we've been too tentative and too cautious to think through worst case scenarios and getting ready for them and preparing for them, um, including um, contingencies in East Asia, contingencies in, in the Taiwan Strait, you know, thinking through a, a world in a few years time where there's not only kind of a careful backing up each other economically and diplomatically, but actual interoperability of troops, joint action endeavors. I'm not saying all of that is going to happen, but I do think that we need to move into a zone where um, we just think this through um, fully and understand what kind of world that would lead to um, and what the potential responses to that are. Um, and that holds true from the cyberspace to kind of the question of economic cooperation until uh, in, into the very zone of military cooperation. Um, I think it is very encouraging to see that um, in the debates here, also here in the German Bundestag, the China question was referenced very much um, with regard to the responses that are being raised. And it's now even being heard in diplomatic quarters quite a bit to say, you know, this is Russia now, could be China tomorrow. We have to be very careful with these regimes. We have to be very careful with, um, with how we balance this out so that we don't kind of um, move into an antagonistic di direction, but um, that will uh, lead to a certain response um, and, and only antagonism will prevail, but how we can actually make ourselves a bit more, position ourselves a bit more pragmatically and realistically and beef up our own defense from the energy sector to um, our military uh, capabilities. Um, I think this is, there's a lot to, to work from here. There's a lot of enthusiasm in Berlin at the moment about um, our kind of way uh, stronger response than we expected um, and a lot of money being poured into this. But I think after this initial euphoria, I think we should stop thinking about how do we actively shape a world um, that we would like to see and what could Germany's role particularly be in that? Um, and now that it has woken up to the fact that it could take a more um, active foreign policy, that will entail a number of very difficult questions. Questions which we will return to on this podcast, but we're running out of time for this discussion. We've got one thing left to do on this podcast, which is our bookshelf segment. I'm sure that you've both been so busy watching all of the crazy things that are going on in the world to, to, to read many books. But what's on your bookshelf at the moment, Kadri? Um, nothing in terms of books. Uh, I, I read articles. I'm glued to Twitter. Um, but one thing that I'm trying to do for the soul, so to say, is to... Um, study some Tibetan language every evening and translate at least one sentence. That has an amazing calming effect. What about you, Yanka? 
Well, I actually went back to a book by, by Phil Tetlock and Dunn Gardner about super forecasting. Um, and uh, I think we are in that zone now again where we should take a few lessons from how do we forecast, how do we make predictions um, stick better. Um, I think there's a lot of things that, that we can take from this crisis in terms of things that we didn't um, properly um, integrate. And there was this wonderful sentence that was used uh, in a meeting the other day when I was at the AWM in Vienna that was uh, epistemic humility. I think that we need a big dose of that, all of us, and that's what I'm trying to do. That's the opposite philosophy from this podcast where we're um, constantly trying to predict the future. But at least we have the humility to go back and, and um, acknowledge our mistakes um, uh, so maybe it's a, it's more of a kind of reflexive and iterative process. But um, we'll put links up to all the publications that we mentioned, including some of the great writing which Yanka and Kadri have been doing on Sino-Russian relations, on the crisis, on how it's seen in all of its different dimensions. I'm sure that we will be having many, many more discussions on all of these issues on the podcast as the Ukraine crisis evolves and as the relationship between these two great powers um, on our borders, uh, which occupy so much of the Eurasian landmass, becomes more and more central to our future as well. But for now, from Kadri Leek, Janka Erkel, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of this podcast is Lucy Halpenthal, and the editor of this episode is Chris Eichberger. Mm-hmm.